Hi, I'm Katerina and this is Sound Effects, a new music and mental health podcast. I called you brazen, called you whole right to your face And watched you silently and publicly disgraced in this episode, I'm speaking to Mark Richardson, the drummer of Feeder and Skunk Nancy. I'll be talking to him about his experiences with trauma, addiction, and the setting up of music support for individuals in the industry suffering from mental, emotional, and behavioral health disorders. Why don't you drama you're in Skunk Nancy and before then you were in Little Angels and Feeder. I wanted to ask you I guess initially about Skunk Nancy so I know you joined in 1995 when you saw them support the band Therapy. What really drew you to the band? I lived in Nottingham at the time and there was this amazing band that I'd seen on a, a kebab shop television. It was up in the corner of the kebab shop and it was really late and I'd come out of a club and I was really worth aware and saw the I Can Dream video on, on the telly and I thought, ah, oh, this is great because it was a big queue so I got to watch it all. <laughs> and I thought, this is, what a great song, what a fantastic, what, at the time she was, Skip was, had the stripe down her head, and, which she didn't do for many years after that, but at the, t- at the beginning she was doing the stripe on the head. It was, I was just really struck by the image and I loved the song and then I was at home in Nottingham and I noticed that they were playing supporting therapy, doing a UK tour supporting therapy and I said to my mate, let's go and check them out because um, you know, I'd known George, the owner of Rock City for ages, so he'd always said, if there's anything you fancy, just give us a ring and pop down. So, And as we walked in, into Rock City, into the main concert hall there, they were just coming on stage and the band were just starting up. And mm. at the time, the first song was Selling Jesus. And we said we left an intro on and she came running on as she, <laughs> as she always does, you know, slightly like after a bit of a delay and then just attacks the crowd. And my, I guess my memory of it is that, that you feel in some way assaulted <laughs> by what's going on on stage. And I love that, you know, because in Blow I was playing quite bluesy music. It's not really what I was wanting to play. And also it's quite druggy and it was quite messy. And there was a part of me, subconscious part of me, as I came to realise that at the time that was desperately trying to get me away from the mess and the drugs and the scene. So, you know, I guess the change is as good as the rest, but it was a, it, it, it manifested itself as a musical change. So I said to my mate who I was at the concert with, this is what I want to do, you know, this is the sort of music I want to play, you know, it's, a, it's a sort of um, energetic, it's powerful, it's, you know, the lyrics are saying something. It's not just about loving someone or being hurt by someone 
in social commentary, you know, so, and, and that really, really spoke to me. had on you and how you wanted to be part of it and there was something that they were bringing you said about their sort of political side and something coming through that was different because I think when I think about Skunk and Nancy particularly that period of time when we're talking sort of the Brit pop years in a way I don't know how you feel about being cast in the same frame as Britpop because I don't yeah. I don't necessarily think Skunk and Nancy are typically Britpop but you were famous during the Britpop yeah. era yeah absolutely but you were so different and there was something very progressive about the band my memory when I think back about Britpop in that era being very white male men with guitars and then I've just got this image of skin like this really strong female bringing in new ideas around race and gender and sexuality and that's a really strong image for me thinking about it in the context of today you you were really quite a progressive band for the time and, oh, and yeah so. no, I think I think you know I, I didn't have a clue what I was getting myself into I knew I wanted to be associated with skin and that band because I knew that they could be a vehicle for my personal ambitions mm. but I also loved the music but I think the thing or everything you said there is is absolutely spot on there was Skin was just 20 years, 23 years even, ahead of her time in terms of wanting to talk about what we're talking about now. You know, as a matter of course, it's, it's out in the open and it's all, it's okay to talk about gender and all of these different subjects. But back then, she was championing the cause and yeah. no one was listening, you know. So it, it was an incredible, it was incredible really looking back on that, how she was then and, and also Cass as well, mm. you know, on, on the whole side of things. I learned an incredible amount 
from those two. Because I came from Whitby. I came from Whitby to London. Whitby, incredibly undiverse, even now. And I just didn't have the diversity in my life to teach me about those things. Mm. And so when I joined Skunk and Nancy, so green and I was so inexperienced with LGBTQ plus issues or, you know, any mm. didn't even exist at the time, but, you know, and racial issues, all this kind of stuff. I didn't have a clue. Mm. And I thought I had to be, I thought I had to act in some other way, you know, because of their race. Because I, I had no, like, I'm really sorry that I'm so awkward because I've never known any black people before. Mm. You know, I actually said that to Cass and he, was, <laughs> and he just sort of, he just laughed and said, oh, it's okay, I, I get it, you know. Because yeah. they knew I'd come from a sleepy town in, in the northeast of England. And I feel ashamed to actually admit it, but I'm glad that I can recognise that now and own it and that I'm not like that anymore. Yeah, but the sadder thing would be to still be, to be um, ignorant of that stuff, yeah. you know. So they were, they were fantastic teachers as well, apart from musicians and a great band. What was it like for you as a group, um, given what you're saying about your experience, being in an environment where everyone around you, you're surrounded by this homogenized system that the band you're in is sort of speaking out against. Um, you said no one was listening and I'm wondering what you remember that being like. I don't think I'm speaking out of turn by saying that, you know, that we had an incredible amount of opportunity, but I think the band should have been a lot bigger than it was. And I'm not saying opportunities were missed for whatever reason, but I just don't think that we got, because we were we are so good, and we and I say that because we still are very, yeah. very good, a live band. And we were then, you know, maybe not quite as good as we are now, but we had something then that was even more raw, I suppose. Um, and, and that put the fear of God up people, other musicians, other bands, bands that we were supporting. We, we didn't, we didn't get a lot of support because we were too good. People were scared that it was going to get blown off stage. So once the word had spread that, that we were sort of ferocious and, and really good and skin had a killer voice, then we didn't get a lot of support that we maybe that maybe could have helped us a lot. We, we still got a lot. We got our best share, but I think we maybe held back in some way. Mm. Um, just because we were so good, but it was it was very frustrating, you know, seeing going to South Africa and seeing the way Captain Skin were treated, for example. You know, we were the first British rock band to go after apartheid had been had been dismantled, and and um, it was quite horrendous, you know, some of mm. the ways in which they were spoken to and they were treated wow. on most trips to South Africa. But you know, you, I I have such a privilege. You know, white male, Western white, you know, Western white young male point of view on things that I really don't have a clue how difficult it is. Not really, and it would be wrong of me to try and assume that I, I know what they've been through. I kind of have seen some things, I have an idea, but I don't really know. I can't spend a day in their shoes, you know, so I don't, yeah. I don't really know. But I know that it's been very, very difficult at times for both of them. It's an interesting point, actually, that you make, just as you've kind of brought it up. I'm wondering whether race is one of the issues that does ever come up as something that musicians experience currently that they might go to music support for. They could do. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's absolutely, you know, I, I stepped away from music support for a little bit just because the band went back on tour and I couldn't put the time in. And the structure was changing and Festival Republic got involved 
we set it up, the premise was that anybody in the industry can have access to support for mental health and addiction problems. Mm -hmm. You know, whether you are a music journalist, whether you are an, an agent or a manager or a or road crew or anyone, because there's plenty of support for the musicians yeah. from actually not in the mental health sense, but Help Musicians UK were doing a lot for injuries and, you know, uh, musicians that, that couldn't work and had bills to pay and all that kind of stuff. Being the musicians benevolent fund, that was why they were there. So, uh, so there's a lot of help, and BAPAM and things like that were there. I think BAPAM were made the, the mental health arm of what Help Musicians UK did. But when music support started, our focus was on mental health because we were all in recovery and we all knew that addiction mm. is a mental health problem. Mm. And a lot of people on tour are suffering with, with addiction problems. For whatever reasons, you know, whether it be historical child abuse or something or, or anything from mm. there to get enough love as a kid, you know, there's a, there's a million reasons why people choose addiction or fall into addiction. Yeah. And, and you know, there's too many to, to start talking about now, you know, I could only speak about my own, but mm. um, music support was there for everybody and it was there for the purposes of supporting those with, with mental health. I saw a chap actually on the road this summer who called, because when we first set it up, we were answering the phones ourselves and taking it in turn, doing a week on, week off, and oh, wow. the phone. I saw and one of, one of the calls I got was a chap that was in the woods. He was, he was about to commit suicide by poisoning, and he thought, oh, just let me give these guys a ring and see what they say. And I picked the phone up, and I'm not, saying that I saved his life, he was still very much in, unsure when he put the phone down, but it gave him, you know, I suggested he go to his doctor, suggested he get his meds read up that, suggested he call Samaritan, mm. and that was enough to, to sort of save his life, you know, so it's a really, we, we, we had the idea of setting up music support, the four of us, all from all sides of the industry, and it took a long time, and, there, and it happened, and it still exists. So, and it's saved a few lives already. So, you know, as far as I'm concerned, that's a huge success story. Yeah, but it's, it's so powerful the way you create that imagery as well. When you zone in on one person's experience, and you said your own experiences, and yeah. I'm really interested to know about your background. If you're if you're okay or willing to speak about it a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, uh, gosh, I just grew up in a, had a, a lovely upbringing, you know, uh, childhood was fun and, and in, I mean, all the family work that I've done, has come, which has come out of recovery, has been just based on the struggles that mum and dad went through to give us the things we needed, you know, and without going into too much detail, it affected me as a young lad when I needed present parents. They were going through stuff that made that very, very difficult. And so when I started acting up and as I grew up and got older, I got the relief came in the, in the form of alcohol and, and that made me feel sort of part of and more confident and all of that kind of stuff that I, you know, it made, it made the anxiety disappear eventually mm. that I felt as a kid. And so when I got on the road, it, I guess, I was I was I was enabled to drink and drug as as much as I want 
and in fact it's almost encouraged, you know. Mm. One of the main one of the main reasons to ban split up the first time was because of, you know I was drinking and not behaving particularly well. And and that gave everyone, you know, the excuse that they needed to go off and do their own thing. Um, so the band split up. And then when that happened, I re- that, that's what really got through to me. So I, I didn't really hear other things. Like I, I didn't, are oh, you going to lose your house or your car? I didn't care. You know, like, mm-hmm. but, when, but, when, but when the band was, was threatened with losing the band, and, or when I did lose the band rather, then that's what, that's what got through to me. That's what I heard. So, so then, you know, I, I, I kind of sought out help and my manager helped me figure something out and I went to see a therapist on, on Harley Street because there was no information and this is the other reason why music support exists because it was so difficult yeah. to find help. There was nobody like now you ask every third person in the street, you know, somebody in AA or NA or, you know, whatever or or who's had therapy and it's a really common thing. Like mm-hmm. it was in the States, you know, thirty years ago. Yeah. I think we've kind of just got there now, you know. But I went so I went to see um, a guy on Harley Street, but he he suggested AA, and so I went along. Uh, really struggled to connect with it for about three years. I sort of bounced in and out of the rooms. Uh, all the while, you know, I'd, I'd have a, a couple of because I, I was a binge drinker, so I could go for weeks without drinking. Mm. I could go to the pub and have a couple of beers, but if something emotional was going on in my life, that's when I would binge drink. And, and it was after, I, I, I do really well for a while and then I'd feel horrendous and the guilt would hit me and I'm like, I'll be like, never again. And then I'd go back to a meeting and I still wouldn't get it. And that just was a cycle that continued for about three years. And then it was when I was in feeder that I had a particularly bad binge with coke and booze with a security guard actually one night. And uh, when I came home and I was, a, I was a terrible mess, went back in heard a chair from a guy who became my sponsor and it was like he was talking to me personally you know saying everything all the things that he was saying i connected with somehow you know i really understood what he was saying so i spoke to him afterwards and he just suggested maybe you should try working the, the 12 steps and i said well yeah but i don't like the god word in there mm. and so he explained to me that look it's not a religious program it's just a, a program of spirituality really so you figure out your own higher power whatever that, whatever that is i chose i chose nature and and you pray to that you know and you get on your knees and you pray for mother nature to take away this desire to self-destruct you know? and it, it took a long time but i stayed sober after that and that was about 17 years ago so but there was a point where after about eight years where i was going i was really unhappy again i thought well this isn't the you know, I thought I was supposed to be happy, joyous and free, but uh, I'm definitely not. I was very depressed, I was very angry. So there was obviously more work. There was more work that I needed to do. Um, but it's, it's important to say as well that I'd had therapy alongside AA the mm. whole time um, because I thought that AA was was good in some areas, but it's, it's severely lacking in others. And, and I needed to fill that gap. Mm. However, after about eight years, neither of it was working. So my therapist suggested a place in America, in Tennessee, called Nashville, Tennessee, called Onsite. Right. And um, so I went and did the Living Center program there. And they looked, they go really deep. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> they unzip you, take everything out and, and give it a good scrub and stick it back in and stitch you up. So by the time you get home, you just don't know which 
each way is up. I mean, it's amazing work what they do there. Is that like a sort um, of residential? This particular program was two weeks. Two weeks. But okay. They do they do inpatient programs of a, of months on end. They've got a new centre now called Milestones, which which is long term treatment. So it's months and months on end if you need it. They also do a lot of uh, veteran programs. So they they take veterans and they they help them come. To, they help them recover from their PTSD and all that kind of stuff. So it's an amazing, amazing place. Mm. A guy called Miles Adcox uh, runs runs it, and he does a lot of podcasts. And, uh, he's, a, he's a fantastic speaker, and in the ways of the, the head and the heart, and, and how they could bridge the gap. I guess. Mm. So I came back from there and I, I was very much a bit of a mess for about a year, but then I was just up and down, you know, really up and down. And they said it would take a while to settle, which it did. Which it does when you do family of origin work, doesn't it? I mean, you'll mm. know this as a therapist. When, when you get honest with clients and you tell them the truth about what's really going on, it's, or they figure it out for the client to figure it out finally for themselves, rather. It's quite a quite a big thing, and so it took a little while for the dust to settle. But when it did, I've never looked back, and I've, I've been a different person ever since. Mm. But the rooms never really did would never have been able to do that on their own. You know, there's a lot of people in the in the rooms of AA and what have you that in their thirty years, and then they just decide one day to go and have a drink because they're in too much pain. You know, they mm. haven't dealt with the stuff, the underlying emotional issues that drove them to drink like that in the first place. Yeah. So it's for me, it's a no-brainer. It's like yes, go to AA, stop drinking, but then look at the reasons why you were doing it in the first place. Otherwise, it's like I say, it's too painful. Yeah, I guess um, it goes back to that systemic thing, doesn't it? Because you, as you were talking earlier about the system in terms of race, you could see it in a similar way that we, you can look at the symptom of the issue around the drinking, which can be seen as as if that's the problem and how to stop it yeah. but yeah when you go deeper a lot of this is around how you're coping with trauma or experiences from before yeah. and it's I think sometimes it's that process that can be quite hard to penetrate first to kind of get yeah. people to be on board with that in the first place and then yeah. I think there can also be a lot of loyalty to family and not wanting yeah. to say actually my family setup maybe wasn't the best for me that in itself can be so hard to recognize or acknowledge especially when you're telling a stranger yeah I mean it's, it's difficult to put it into words in a way that isn't defamatory to my family. But the best way I can describe it is because I don't want to, you know, they did the best that they could. And, mm. and the thing is, that our parents only can give us what they have to give. They haven't been given, uh, I say it, but by it I mean ways to cope with life, you know, ways to cope with a good emotional vocabulary, for example. And, you know, I was just like, don't cry, don't basically don't don't feel, just, yeah. just be and be a man and don't feel. And that's very harsh on my dad because actually he's a very lovely man. Yeah. But but that was passed on to him by his dad who came through the war yeah. and and died of Alzheimer's because of his PTSD that went untreated. Yeah. And that was you know, and that was passed it comes it rolls it rolls down through the generation. 
trauma as well, which is another thing I've learned is that, you know, and, and my mom on her side, she had an, an awful lot to deal with. I mean, horrendous amount to deal with. But, and it'd be unfair to go into it on public record, but mm. but um, she, she passed down a lot of trauma from her mom who has passed down a lot of trauma from her mom. So this stuff, you know, until it until somebody goes, hang on a minute, this I don't feel right, this can't be right, which is what happened to me. Mm. I just, I felt so low within myself so unhappy and I just saw other people being happy and I was like hang on a minute I want to be like that I don't want to feel like this inside so you know it's like this they, they describe it in the rooms as a god-shaped hole you know which obviously translates to in, in, to in my language as a, a spiritual hole there was something in me there was there was an emotional sort of cavity that I needed to fill with really good practice and that sort of form of you know building my self-esteem and my confidence and my self-worth and going to therapy and looking at myself and being healthy and not drinking and not drugging and getting back in touch with my son and being a good ex-husband to my ex-wife and mm. getting married again and committing to, to a new life with her and, you know all of these things and just being trying wanting to be a better person is what filled up that hole yeah. but I didn't know that I had to learn that mm. for myself because I didn't it wasn't taught to me it wasn't a natural thing that they had to teach me so mm. it's not that it's not anything's fault I went through a, a period of blaming them of course I did but it's nobody's fault mm. it's just they didn't have it to give so mm. I've looked at it and, and I can try and pass that on to my son and my kids but everyone's different and everybody reacts to different things so you just never know yeah. you know I think, you know, so much of what you're bringing up is so relevant now as well because you've you've talked about, you know, on the one hand you've got this sort of generational um, handing through of trauma and then also this male identity that you're describing around not feeling and being told to just kind of keep it in and not cry, which which you said kind of came from, you know, messages of your father. And I'm just thinking about that in terms of our awareness now and knowledge around male suicide statistics. And it sounds like your father would have been the exact generation, the buffer generation. I, I mean, I don't know how much you presumably you already know around the buffer generation who were exactly that generation who were brought up stuck between two ideals between the old sort of old school ideal of being a very stoic family man sort of um, mm. not talking but then ending up with children who are part of a new changing generation and not yeah. knowing how to speak to them about those changes um, yeah it sounds like you were caught up in that exact shift, which is what so much of the statistics are that are coming through now allude to. Mm, that's given me goosebumps because that's absolutely spot on. You know, he was he was half well, just you know, don't cry and get on with it. Half really wanted to be in touch and encouraged. He actually encouraged me to be in, in touch with my emotions. But uh, at times, but then, you know, he would say, it's okay to cry at times. And that would really surprise me because prior to that, he'd, he'd be like, well, he's got to grin and bear it, you know, suck it up and get on with it sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And um, so there was this sort of dichotomy within him emotionally that was quite confusing for me, I think. But ultimately led me to be able, it led me to be able to be open enough 
to see recovery as maybe a way out of my own internal misery. Mm. <laughs> That's not too depressing. No. Too, too depressing to say. Um, so it's very, very interesting. I, but I think you're absolutely right. And he was, you know, it was the generation after the real stoic kind of like you don't feel, you don't talk, you don't do this, you don't do that. And but, but, but looking forward to a future where that attitude was relaxing its grip on them, I think. And to a point now where we've got, you know, my son tells his male friends that he loves them, you know, just mm-hmm. as, a ma- as a matter of, it's just not even a thing. It's just, they just do it. I mean, mm-hmm. it's incredible, you know, to have that. And I have that with my dad now, but after an incredible amount of time, you know. Yeah. And he still, I know he still struggles to tell me. He would deny that, but... <laughs> and I know he does, but it's fun trying to get it out of him. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it has changed uh, an incredible amount. It's lovely to hear that your son can kind of openly tell his friends he loves them. Like, yeah, mm. it's lovely. It, it, it sort of demonstrates how, how things are changing, doesn't it? But then it's kind of left. The sad part is the, the fact that the whole generation had to go through that shift. Well, if you think how many people died in the Second World War, yeah, you know, and the and the first and the first, you know, but the second was just it, it's like you cut a limb off a tree and it goes into shock for a while, you know, while it recovers. It's like mm. the world must have done the same thing because so many people died, and you know, when how how are you as a young kid, like my dad was a young kid when my grandmother came back from the war, how how are you ever going to complain about anything? How do you ever feel you have the right to complain about anything when you know he's been through something so horrific? Yeah. You know, and obviously times are really tough and, and all of that kind of thing. And they had, you know, the, the food tokens and all that sort of stuff. And there was a, a lack of everything for a long time. To go from that to over, what's that, three generations, my dad, me and my son, mm. Um, the difference between the two is just incredible. Alex has an amazing emotional vocabulary and, like I say, he's very open with it and that's really lovely. You know? mm. It's an incredible journey from grandfather to, to grandson, isn't it? Yeah. When you sort of look at it like that. Absolutely. I, I think what you're describing is, is so important and, yeah, the fact that we see those three, it's like a strata, three generations and witnessing the, sh- the change and the shift. The way you described it as a shock, I think, uh, you know, like a, cutting a, a limb off a tree, I think will resonate with a lot of people because there, w- there will be a lot of, I, I mean, I'm assuming like the people listening to this podcast, there will be a lot of guys probably think who will recognise that exact image in their own fathers and sons and who are of your age group really resonating with that. So I like I really appreciate you kind of going into that a bit more. That's that's really that's not a problem. Yeah. It's, it's my pleasure and it's part of part of my journey to pass on my experience because it helps help others obviously, but it also helps me remember what I've been through. So mm. to do interviews like this every now and then is a real pleasure for mm. me it's a real honor because it you know it, it has a, a it's a double-edged sword you know mm. it helps me and, and other people so yeah. thank you for asking me 
oh no, your hair will come. I mean, it's it's kind of it's making me think of when you first got signed. There were two things. Kurt Cobain, the news that Kurt Cobain had died, I think, happened on the same day that you were signed. That's when, right. Yeah, and you also have experience of um, the drummer of Feeder taking his yeah. life. So I'm, I'm yeah. wondering about those two instances on you, really, and, yeah, how they were for you. Well, it's a little-known fact that all the drummers that I've taken over from, in all the bands that I've been in, are now dead oh. from alcohol-related or mental health-related problems. So I took over from Robbie France, who's an alcoholic, and died at 52 of liver failure in Spain. John Lee obviously hung himself. He was living in Miami with his wife and son and, and hung himself in the garage because he was torn between staying there and coming home. Mm-hmm. And and obviously <coughs> Michael Lee, who I took over, got my gave me my first break actually. And this is where addiction runs through the whole music business for me. That Stephen Adler, who was the drummer from Guns N' Roses, had was back because of his heroin addiction. And then Matt Sorum from the Cult joined Guns N' Roses, and then Michael Lee from Little Angels left Little Angels and joined the cult, and then that gave me my break in, in Little Angels. So, I mean, how weird is that? But mm. Michael Lee, obviously, he also died from an alcoholic seizure when he tried to stop drinking, and, you know, was obviously drinking too much, had a seizure, and he died. You know, and there's just there's just been so many, hasn't there? You know, that's mm. just the ones that, have, uh, have, uh, that I'm connected to, but then my mate Stuart from Stereophonics, or we choked on his own vomit after a binge, and, you know, there's, there's just loads, Amy, mm. you know, and then you've got the opioid crisis in America and here, actually. People say the opioid crisis is just America, but it's spreading to here and it's getting really bad, you know, so it's not going to stop anytime soon. But um, just to get back onto onto the point for a sec, I just it just amazes me that they're all they've all passed away and and I've been <laughs> the drummer that's taken over. It's sort of it's crazy, mm. but it is changing. The music industry is changing. I've seen a radical shift from most people wanting to get bullied and have a good time and get drunk and uh, take drugs to most people to, to that being the minority actually now. Most people don't want to do that. They mm. want to be, you have to be professional, you have to have your shit together, you have to be able to do what you need to do when you need to do it. And I think that's maybe why the music has changed as well, because you get some kind of music when you're in a mess. Yeah. You just do, you know, it's just different. I couldn't tell you how. It's a creative thing. It comes from somewhere deep down inside. But you can tell the difference when you listen to Busted or the wanted or you know any of that pop factory stuff and then you go ahead and listen to Led Zeppelin or Jimi Hendrix or Deeper. You know, it's it's really it's really obvious. It's so true and it's also so sad that uh, in a way that catch twenty two because how do you balance those two things and and it's quite an interesting debate, isn't it? Like to what extent this idea that creativity and vulnerability and mental health issues are intrinsically connected, how da- how dangerous that can be also as a as an idea for people coming through. It's uh, it's incredibly dangerous. I mean, it's it seems to me to be. Um, yeah, it's sort of it's it sort of changed though. I mean, I meet so many people now that aren't even interested in it, you know. And it and it's sort of it's kind of amazing that it's like I say, it's switched from being the norm 
to be the out of control alcoholic, you know, artist. Mm. To be in sort of reasonably sensible, having the odd beer and, and having a, a reasonable time as opposed to a crazy, <laughs> crazy drug fueled time. Mm. It's very interesting. Mm. I don't know. I, I, I wonder why, though. I mean, I don't really know why it's changed. Mm. Um, I think the advent of the digital era has ch- has helped to change it a lot because you know gone are the days when record companies subsidize tours and you know pay for lots of things and well give you the impression they're paying for lots of things because of course the band are always paying for it ultimately but you know that that sort of feeling of having to party with this person and that person because you need to socialize with them and you need to do this you need to do that it's all just excuses you know now mm. i think what's maybe changed is that it's it's okay to say you know what I'm, it's half past three i'm going to go to bed mm-hmm. or it's, you know i'm not I, i'm not going to take that line or i'm not going to have that to reach or whatever it is you know mm-hmm. uh, but there's there's still a lot of addiction out there in crew land you know there's mm-hmm. still a lot of addiction out there generally but there's there's a lot of my experience of the touring the touring sort of party is that musicians that generally tend to be a lot calmer these days and the crew depending on who it is mm. do they still do what they do you know because um, it's the only way because you've got to remember that a band like i go on tour once every two years right for two months and they never stop so they they have to develop coping mechanisms to deal with that and if they're not healthy then it's going to be losing drugs isn't it yeah it's almost like there's the whole industry set up you've got that kind of double whammy because there's the reason for why people would go into a job like that in the first place which can entail all this all the stuff you mentioned before around you know desire to to escape and the trauma and then you go from that to an environment where the touring schedule is so hectic and your sleep patterns are all over the place and it's like a terrible cocktail for exacerbating those issues it's like how do you come out of that loop once yeah, it. it's very, it's really, really difficult to get out of that loop because, especially, you know, we had one guy on our on our tour that we'd never worked with before, and he obviously came onto it thinking that he was going to behave the same as he did on the previous tour, and, and we're just not like that. But as soon as he learned that it was okay not to be like that, he was fine, and he blossomed, and he he could be himself, and he didn't have to pretend to be this crew person in inverted commas that had to be pissed all the time. Mm-hmm. Or as soon as he finished work, you know, he had to do whatever, you know. So it was, that was a really lovely um, illustration of how given the permission to be yourself, like, and not by somebody saying you have permission to be yourself, just by the example of the people around you. It was lovely, you know, mm-hmm. and it was one day we were like, either, you know, you can go home because we can't have that, we don't want that around us. And then over the next couple of days, it was completely different and, and lovely to be around, you know, so it was, it was really nice to see. And a really lovely illustration of how, you know, people can influence the people around them and give them permission to be who they are. Because we're all comfortable with who we are. We don't need to, we don't need to do that stuff to feel like we join in. We join in as we are, you know, we just, we're just us. We're naturally happy um, as we are. We don't need all that other stuff, you know. 
the rest of them will still have the odd night where they have a few beers and some wine and what have you and get a bit silly but you know it's just it's it's a healthy it's a healthy sort of balance it's a really nice place to be yeah as you say that I'm wondering what you're just feeling because I imagine that just feels like such an accomplishment to have reached that place that maybe once seemed so far away absolutely I, I used and drank before on the crew bus because I was so ashamed of the way I was being or the amount not the way I was being but the amount I was drinking and consuming and I just wanted to keep going because I couldn't cope with how I felt about myself and the world and how my life was at home was falling apart but I just needed to be escaping all the time mm. so to to flip that completely 180 degrees and just be looking in the opposite direction and going, you know what, I'm me and if I can't cope with this, I'll talk to somebody about it and if that doesn't work, then I'll talk to someone else and if that doesn't work, then I'll go home because I'm more important and my mental health and well-being is more important than anything and to have me, my own self-worth and and self-care at the forefront of everything that happens in my life is really is truly astounding Mm. (laughs) you know um, it's a wonderful wonderful place to be and such an important message that that's so important for people to put their well-being at the front of everything yeah yeah but it's so difficult like if you if you've never been given like if you've never been given that example i stumbled on it i felt into it from a, a side road, if you like. But if you've never been gim- given the example of what that's like, then it must be torture to have to be in that space the whole time, be in a space where you're unhappy and miserable, and the only way you can feel better is by using mm. drink, drugs, gambling, sex, whatever it is that, that changes the way you feel. Essentially, that's what addiction is. It's just something that changes the way you feel. It takes you out of the feelings of the negative feelings puts you into a more positive frame of mind, albeit temporary, temporary. that's what addiction is to me, but it can be anything, food, yeah. one of my one of my struggles still is, is sugar, you know, I still really struggle with sugar and I really need to get a handle on that because I don't want to develop diabetes when, mm. I'm, when, I'm, when I'm older, so mm. it's sort of, it's interesting because although I've solved a lot of the things that are immediately damaging, um, has moved around into different areas and, yeah. and I've picked up and put down different things over the years and it just so happens that at the moment it's sugar. Yeah. It's a work in progress, we're never perfect, but you know, at least I have awareness now of, of all of these things and when I when I am being addictive, I can be open with my wife and she's really funny, she'll say, <laughs> you know, you're going for a cigarette, like I'll, <laughs> we'll have a, a little argument or something and I'll go to the shop and get a chocolate bar <laughs> she calls it going for my go for a cigarette because <laughs> I don't smoke either so um, the only thing that I've got really left is to change the way I feel or to act as a pacifier if you like is um, mm. is, a, is a chocolate bar or something like that but it's a lot less damaging than drinking drugs 
It's funny because a moment ago when you spoke about how the industry's sort of changing in the sense that people are not um, necessarily turning to the drugs as much, I, I one thing I have become aware of amongst young people is how addictive behaviours are sort of still there, but they've moved, they've started to focus on food. I think things like, it's possibly the rise of things like Instagram and, and like looking good and yeah. these kind of addictive behaviors around um looking physically good and almost going the other way with being super healthy and eating all this kind of like eating clean seems to be a kind of new movement of of addiction don't know where that's going to end up but yeah it's it's been like i I, I think i think the instagram thing will come full circle i think everyone will eventually realize that it's um used in the right way used for promoting your business or whatever then it's it's great, but, you know, if you're using it to compare, then it's just going to end in tears. Mm. Because, you know, what we put up there, it's not a balanced view of our of our own lives, is it? It's a very biased view of the best parts of our lives, for the most part. I know there are some people that do do balanced Instagram posts, but, you know, I'm not one of them. I don't want to mm-hmm. I don't want to put posts up there where I'm moaning about my life or I'm saying I'm unhappy or whatever I just want to put the good stuff up there and it's, that's just, I find that really, when I think about it quite distressing because life's about balance isn't it, so mm. it's not I think it'll come around and people will see it for what it is I hope so anyway because this whole internet generation of of, uh, of all of this comparing thing is just really damaging mm. And it's an interesting point in terms of music support and the music industry because I guess the way the industry's gone, so much is focused on on putting things out there online and keeping yourself on Instagram and perpetuating this idea like followings and how many followers you've got and how many Twitter followers you have and yeah, um, I I can see how that it can become a curse. Uh, this albatross on the neck of having to force themselves to be addicted to the internet because of the the product, you know, the way the industry yeah. works. And I'm wondering whether that's something coming out. Whether you're seeing or aware of it more in terms of when people are seeking support through music support. Whether that is something that is being said. Well, I, I don't have the exact figures or anything in terms of music support but I know from you know we were saying before about you know sort of the in-between generation between my grandfather and my dad and me and my son and how the emotional sort of journey's been between between us four well I think I can see like the internet started when I was sort of gosh well it's about when it became public I think it was around about the late 90s, early noughties. Well, certainly that's when I got my first laptop anyway, it was like 97 or something like that, and first started going online. And it's obviously developed into what we have today, and my son is like completely obsessed with likes and how many likes he's got for this and how many and how many streams he's got for his music and this, that and the other. And, and then I think his son, well, I think we'll see the same sort of dynamic shift again you know we'll see the next generation will be like i'm not that's not really good for your dad you know <laughs> <laughs> you know so like like he says to me that you, you shouldn't eat so many chocolate 
him and say, you know what, Dad, you should, you should have spent so much time on Instagram. <laughs> um, at least I hope that's the way it goes anyway. I hope people go back to the earth and go back, get a bit more earthy and, and, and want to be more, you know, do better things for the planet, like this amazing girl Greta who's just, mm. you know, gathering the, the, the troops and going on, you know, she's organised all these marches, hasn't she? She's just phenomenal and it's, that, that's the generation that are going to change things. Do you think they hear us? No! We will make them hear us. No! We have not taken to the streets sacrificing our education for the adults and politicians to take selfies with us and tell us that they really, really admire what we do. We are doing this to wake the leaders up. We are doing this to get them to act. We deserve a safe future. And we demand a safe future. Is that really too much to ask? We are not just some young people skipping school or some adults who are not going to work. We are a wave of change. Together and united, we are unstoppable. We will rise to the challenge. We will hold those who are the most responsible for this crisis accountable. And we will make the world leaders act. We can and we will. And if you belong to that small group of people who feel threatened by us, then we have some very bad news for you. Because this is only the beginning. and roll isn't it that's where it's going to be <laughs> it is yeah. yeah yeah and those they're amazing those those kids and then they are actually sort of young to mid-teens aren't they they're, mm. they're young yeah but what they're doing is just incredible it's it's so inspiring and she's inspiring you know not only in the fact that what what she the effect she's having but my wife and i were talking about it this morning the fact that she sailed to America to go to the conference rather than fly. I mean, when you when you see that, I mean, in terms of your son, I don't know if your son is musical or whether he's following in in footsteps around wanting to be in a band. In what you might, how you see that? Well, we've had we've had a very open relationship growing up, as you can imagine. I was he was three when I got sober, so we, he, he, I've taught. I've been very open emotionally with him and, and he's very open emotionally with his friends, you know, not so much me because he's 19 now, so that's sort of like I'm the devil and, <laughs> and, he, knows, and, and he knows everything. So that's just, that's just the dynamic that that's just where we are, yeah. you know, in, in life. And I was like that when, he, when I was his age and, and I think most 19-year-olds are like that. You know, my niece is the same and, you know, you just... 
don't want to hear it from anybody and, and you think you've got all the answers. But I'd like to think in a few years when he gets through that, we'll be able to have a more emotionally open relationship. And, you know, he, he knows what I've been through. He knows the successes that I've had. He knows that I've just come back from a really successful tour of, you know, 50, 50 dates all around, sorry, 45 dates all over Europe to play sold out things. So he knows it's what I do and it's a big deal. And he knows about music support and he knows that I've set up, been involved in setting that up and he, he knows what my struggles have been. So if he does go into the music industry, he says it's just a hobby at the moment, but um, if he does go into the music industry, he knows there's help there if he needs it. There is absolutely no reason for him to struggle. The only thing anybody has to do if they're struggling is A, realise that they're in a struggle and have the awareness and then B, have the desire to want to change it. If they're suffering a, a lot of negative consequences from their actions, so, you know, I can't say to him, well, if you do go into the music business, don't do this, don't do that, don't do the other. He's going to do whatever he does. And if he needs help ever, I will obviously be there to pick up the pieces or be there for him, whether it's, you know, positive or negative. Because mm. that's my job as a dad. You know, yeah. That's what my dad did. That's, that is the example that my parents set for me. And that's what I do, what I, what I will do for him. That, it's impossible to tell, you know, but I think, I, I don't like the word advice. I think it's quite, um, it's a dangerous word because it implies that somebody knows better yeah. than you. And when, even if somebody was going into the music industry tomorrow, I wouldn't give them advice. I would just say, I know, I, I've been around a bit, so mm -hmm. if you need any help, let me know. If you've got any questions, let me know. Because otherwise you're just protecting and, disabling them from learning things themselves which is where we learn best isn't it like i don't learn i don't i don't learn anything from somebody telling me how to do it or what to do i learn by doing because i'm not an academic i've got a creative mind i've got an artistic mind so i have to do with my hands yeah. and figure it out for myself or have someone show me and then let me do it myself i don't think uh, my niece is in the industry. She she's um, a production manager for a, a big production company up north, and um, she does lots of big tours and all this kind of stuff. And it was really really tempting to say, "Oh, here's a here's a big list of do's and don'ts," and, and <laughs> but you know I didn't. And now she just calls when she's struggling, when she's had an argument with someone or someone's been horrible to her or whatever. She calls us because. She knows she can, she knows we'll listen, she knows we won't be judgmental and mm. and and she and that's a great support to her. So I think that's the best thing that you could you could offer someone going into the industry in this day and age is that make sure you have great support around you. Mm. Um, people to listen. You know, people don't know how to listen anymore unless you're trained to listen, like yourself, you mm. know. There's a wonderful, a wonderful lady called uh, Patsy Klein who wrote a book called Time to Think. And when I did my coaching course, it, one of the lessons, the biggest thing, the most profound thing for me out of that whole thing was giving people, giving people the space to work it out for themselves, which 
I've been given as a client in therapy. I had no idea what was happening. I didn't know what the mechanics of it. But when I, when I read her book and I was taught about this, we, we did this exercise on being silent, giving somebody the space to be. It changed my world because her theory is that the brain that has a problem is the brain that can come up with a solution. Mm. And in my experience of giving people this space, that's absolutely true. You let people work it out for yourself. You ask incisive questions and then they work it out. Um, and it's just fascinating to, to watch it work. You know, mm. it's really, really lovely as well. And it's so respectful. And, and they go away feeling so much better. The bits of coaching that I've done. So I did a lot of, I've done a lot of recovery coaching, a lot of addictive recovery coaching. Uh-huh, okay. For my friend who has a company in London. Portobello Behavioural Health. Um, I've worked with him quite a bit as a coach with artists who are struggling with addiction. And, and it's just really, really nice um, to see people figure it out for themselves. You know, uh, that's, that's what I would, I would gift yeah. anybody. Uh, anybody that, that needed me to be there for them who was going out on the road and starting out in the industry, I would just say, I'm here for you. Yeah. Just call me if it, if it gets on top. Because it's tough. It's a tough place to exist. And it's a tough place to work. Um, you know, the, the people that work 50 hours in the office would maybe struggle to sort of understand that. But it really, really is. Because to them, it seems, oh, you're moving around, you're seeing different countries. It's a, it's a, it must be a great job. Actually, it is a great job. And mm-hmm. it does have that side. But it's also really, really difficult as well. Mm-hmm. Because you're away from your family. You're away from your community. surrounded by all the pitfalls that we've already spoken about so it can be tough especially if you are a person living with trauma or you know and and you're struggling and you don't want to maybe you're struggling with trauma and you have awareness around it and you're in and out of using and that's a really painful place to be if you're on the road but you know we've got we've got skype now so we can do therapy i do therapy with my therapist still i check in every now and then and and do a a skype session because she's moved back to new zealand you know so it's not um but it's really lovely because we can still connect and still check in yeah it's really really lovely yeah i want to harness that feeling of hope that you've just generated there because it's uh it's um it's a really nice message and reminded of when babies are learning to walk and when you're saying about allowing people to find the solution themselves when when you're teaching a child to walk you're not walking for them or pulling them along but you're there kind of supporting them to be able to stumble and fall but you're there there's something about what you've said that kind of reminds me of that in a way and yes, yeah, it's a really nice image. Yeah. On that hopeful note, I'm wondering about what's next for you in terms of where you're where you're going next. Because obviously, you're you're doing your you've, you this year's been the 25th anniversary for Skunk and Nancy, so there's yeah. a lot going on there. Is that something that's going to continue? We we finished now. Yeah. Um, I don't know after that. Um, hopefully, a new record. Um, there's a few other drumming projects on the horizon for me, you know, session work with other bands and stuff that may or may not happen, uh, which is always the case. That's just, that's just part of being a, an artist, I guess, and 
making a career out of it. Some things happen and some things don't. But yeah, I mean, hopefully there'll be more. We don't know because we haven't we haven't actually spoken about it yet. So um, we don't know. We've just finished this tour, so we'll have a, a good few months off probably, and then we'll figure out probably in the new year what what we're going to do, what the future looks like, what the timelines are, and see if we can see if we can figure it out. I've definitely figured out that I don't want to do anything else but music. Mm-hmm. So uh, I tried other jobs in between skunk tours. And I tried event management at a motorcycle place in Shoreditch. And I tried working for my mate at Portobello Behavioural Health full time, which neither of which um, filled me with great joy, I have to say. Um, so unless I absolutely enforce to financially, I'm just going to try and pursue other musical avenues and see what see what that brings and just commit to that and see what happens. Because I've always thought, oh, I've had more than my fair share. You know, my sort of self-worth kicks in and you go, well, you've had Little Angels, Feeder and Skunk. You know, like, give someone else a chance. <laughs> <laughs> That's my internal message. That actually, it's a business and I need to run my business of being mm. a drummer. That's the truth of it. So we'll see, yeah. We'll see what happens. I've been very lucky and I've, I've worked really hard for what we've got and uh, hopefully I can continue doing that because that's what I do best and that's what I love the most. So. I'm just thinking about a sort of ending this on a song that you might want on the episode that maybe either a song that you love or something that represents something important around what we've been talking about. Or... I, th- I think it has to be hedonism really because yeah. the lyric just because you feel good it doesn't make you make it right. It's, it's just so true of addiction and it, and it just really resonates with me in terms of my journey in Skunk and how it affected everyone else Uh, and I'm not saying that that lyric is about what happened in the band because it may or may not be I don't know it may be connected it may be about something completely different but it spoke to me as such an amazing lyric you know just because it feels right just because it helps you just because it changes the way you feel look at the effect it's having on everyone else
wonder what you're doing now. I hope. 